excited to be with you guys this morning. I just want us to, as the church, not miss the forest for the trees. And there's so many ways that we can miss the forest for the trees. Are you familiar with that figure of speech? You're looking at a lush forest of trees, and if you see one tree and you miss the big picture, there's quite a few trees. There's a whole lot more going on, and and the tendency is to hear one thing and miss the forest for the trees. To hear to, to hear an emphasis of one thing and, and miss the forest for the trees. And of all things in our culture, the understanding of what church is is missing the forest for the trees. I mean, there's a nice little figurative picture right here in this room. We've got a few here, a few here. And a few here. It's just our natural tendencies to kind of pick our spot of where we would sit. But look at how scattered we are in this room. And take that as a picture of the church in our culture. We're together, but not really together. And there is an urging in the scriptures, for us to come together. Paul had a few places where he urged believers, and Peter had a couple places where he urged believers, and Paul, one of his was that you all agree, and that there be no division. And really what he's saying in that context is that you gather around Jesus, truly. You gather around the reality of Jesus Christ being that link to your fellowship. And as David mentioned, the church is the called out ones. We're the ones that are are called out to be different from the world. To be separate, to be set apart for a specific purpose. And in that calling of the church, we're also urged to come together in fellowship. As we go out to our different families and our different occupations all week long, the typical uh, cultural way of our church life is to come together on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And because of that, there's a tendency for us to miss the forest for the trees. So we come Sunday expecting that to be the ticket to our life. So when it doesn't happen, what happens? There's division among each other because we're expecting each other to carry a weight of giving us the true fellowship we want. Or if we don't feel connected, we move on somewhere else. The problem is, we carry into that next church the same issues we have. And not only that, but we're carrying the wrong perspective on what the point of church is to the next church. The point of gathering is first around exalting Jesus. It's kind of a healthy self-forgetfulness. We're so enamored with the God-man, with Jesus, our resurrected Lord, and the promise of His return, that we gather in praise of Him. It's a community around the cross. And then, as we gather together around that man, our heart for each other starts to burn. Because we consider what that says about selfless sacrifice, and it inspires in us that same selfless sacrifice. And in the hour we live in, things are coming to a head. And in over the 15 years of knowing the Lord, I've heard common statements, and usually on two sides here. One is, I can't, Get time to read my Bible. I'm too busy. And the other part is having a hard time understanding my Bible. And on the other side, I want true fellowship. I want real relationships. I feel like I can't really connect or get real fellowship here. And those two things are desires in our heart. But nothing's done. Over a year, and two years, and five years, and ten years, 
The same thing is the issue. Brothers and sisters, the time is urgent where those two things can't be taken for granted. And I understand the place of prayer is connected in that. Fellowship is, is the link through the Bible and prayer. All those things are together. But the Word of God and fellowship with other believers. Those things were a vital connection with God and a vital connection with each other cannot be taken for granted anymore. These are the things the Scriptures make clear as the end draws near. These are the two things that cannot be taken for granted. When First John speaks of don't love the world or the things of the world, he speaks of also just before the leading up to it, you, are, you young men are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. The key to overcoming sin, the evil one, and the tribulation, to overcome this present age, yeah. is that the word of God abides in you, fresh and alive. And out of that, that vital fellowship with one another, mm-hmm. unto exalting of Jesus in a greater measure, and uh, confession of sin, that is the key to guarding our hearts in this hour. Let's turn to the scriptures in Luke 21. Jesus paints the pictures of the events of his return. As he turned there, I'll just kind of give a intro to, he, he talks of the signs of the sun and the moon and stars in the earth. Dismay among nations, perplexity of the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, an expectation of the things coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And Jesus says to his disciples, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You just feel this anticipation build in their hearts. He's saying, when He splits the sky and comes in power and glory, it'll be these kinds of things going on. Hope will be lost. People will be desperate and in fear and trembling. And all of a sudden, the Son of Man will come. So those that have been prepared will lift up their head and see that it's redemption coming and not wrath for them. But then He says this, to his disciples who've been following him and who knew him in verse 34. Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighted down. Sounds like every encumbrance in the sin that so easily entangles of Hebrews 12. But weighted down with dissipation. And dissipation is this idea of being so intoxicated with wine that you can't even enjoy yourself. But he's not talking about the saloon that the disciples had a problem with going to all the time. He's talking about the spirit of the age. The expectation, the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride and vanity of life. All the things that we do to maintain our image before man while neglecting praise to God. All those things that turn us away from the simplicity of devotion to the God-man. Of that pure fear of the Lord that, it, that enlightens our eyes and gives us a, a heart set with our affections on God. All those things that distracts from that, the good part of sitting at Jesus' feet. All those things will weigh us down with this wine intoxication that we only know to do with ourselves. We can't enjoy our life. Wow. We're addicted to the intoxication of the world. But then we have a hangover. But somehow we just go back to the same old drunkenness and routine. And Jesus says, don't get weighted down with that. And the worries of life. The worries of life. It's in the parable of the seeds. They choke out the life of the Word of God. And when the life of the Word of God is choked out, you have nothing to help you overcome. You won't overcome. When you're choked out with the worries of the world. And that day, the the day he just talked about, splitting the sky and coming in judgment, will come on you suddenly like a trap. 
Whenever you hear that language in Scripture, it's not good news. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, it says in Second Peter, and it says in First uh, Thessalonians 5, but it's specified that it will come like a thief on those who are not prepared. Right. And he's talking to Peter, James, John, etc. His faithful teenagers who have been following him. They're between 12 and 20. Peter's probably 20 because he had to pay that drachma tax with the fish. Jesus said, put your pole in the ground, in the, not the ground, in the water. Pull up the fish and there'll be a coin enough for you and I to pay taxes so we don't offend them. 20-year-olds paid that. Now they had to be 12 because Jesus gave them a second chance to follow a rabbi because they've been negated to be following a rabbi because they were doing fisherman work and People that didn't pass by mitzvah and were welcomed by a rabbi would go to menial work like fishing and farming. Or if you passed, you could be a doctor or a lawyer or successful. Or you're following a rabbi and you'd have prestige and honor. But Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. He saw into the heart and he saw these fishermen and he, instead of them having to go, am I worthy to follow you? Jesus said, you follow me. And all of a sudden... Who cares about these nets? And dad, you might be offended, but I'm gone. Yeah. Wow. Good. And they followed him with their second chance. Wow. They realized what Jesus was saying. You can follow me. So they ran on to follow him. Indeed. And in following him, he urged these 12 to 20 year olds with great strong words. Things that we kind of Nowadays, in youth ministry, say, you know, they're kids, so take it easy on them. Jesus had a different understanding. They're young enough to take the hard truth now. So they don't waste 30 years of their life trying to find God, and in the end, going through heartache and, and delusionment, disillusionment over where they're at in life and trying to grope for God when all the while if the if the plumb line was set at the beginning and they started there they could have alleviated so much pain of, of living a life opposed to God. Jesus was bold at the beginning with teenagers. So he says it'll come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, at all seasons, all times. Be ready in season and out, because there's coming a time where they won't put up with sound doctrine, but want tickled ears. They'll turn their ears from the truth. But you be sober in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. I urge you, he says, in light of the appearing in kingdom of Jesus, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out, because there's a season coming. You see? So he says... Keep on alert at all seasons. Praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Get the oil of intimacy now is what he's getting at. Learn to stand alert in prayer. Stay alert. The hour is urgent. So he urges them in light of the appearing of Jesus and His kingdom. To be alert in prayer. And when they heard alert in prayer, they knew it meant with each other. There wasn't a distinction. There wasn't... we got to think outside the lenses of our culture. Our tendency is to think very individualistic. And my prayer life, and my fellowship with God, and my Bible time. But think others. They need you, you need them. For real. And we really need to come together in this, in this day, in this hour. So Jesus urged them to pray. Look what Peter says. Now, what's interesting, go to 1 Peter 4, is that one of the disciples, Peter, one of Jesus' main guys, had much reason to have deep and lasting regret that could take him out of the race. He failed Jesus in his most needed hour to have repentance. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell asleep instead of praying. Jesus was sleeping when the storm was raging all around in the boat. Peter was sleeping when he needed to be on the alert. 
Peter was to strengthen his brothers, and he had said, I'll follow you to death. And he had failed. Peter had failed to give an answer for the hope he had within him around the campfire when the little slave girls told him, aren't you one of his? And he feared a little slave girl. Peter failed in all these ways, and every single one of those ways is addressed in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, Peter speaks from a place of confidence and restoration where none of those things get in the way. And he exhorts people to do the very things he failed at. That's a miracle in our human condition. And one of those things is prayer. Peter failed to be alert, but guess what he learned from it? 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You see that connection? Be sober and of sound judgment so you can pray. And then above all, in your prayer... Grow in true love for one another. Not being quick to point out each other's weaknesses and flaws, but rather coming together in such a manner that it's actually a covering over their sin. That the way you fellowship with one another, you would think that each other did not have sin. You see? Because you're fellowshipping around the Lamb of God. You're feasting on Lamb. Jesus said, if you eat my flesh, you drink my blood, you can have part of me, and I'll raise you up in the last day. When we fellowship with one another, we're looking to the, the snake on a pole, or Jesus, you know how he, he was lifted up on a pole. We're looking to the sacrifice. We're eating his flesh and drinking his blood, because that will sustain us. That's true bread, the flesh of the Son of Man sent down from heaven. So when we come together in fellowship and we feast on the Lamb, we focus on the Lamb, we sing to Him, then all of a sudden we get different perspective on each other. And we see each other in light of the Lamb of God and that covers a multitude of sins. And what's that going to do for a brother who's in a a besetting sin? It's going to give him power to break it, to break from it. It's going to spur him on to fellowship and honesty among you. When we really focus on exalting the Lamb, instead of just setting up these religious boundaries that we set up, you you know what I mean? Like, unfortunately, everything can become this legalistic restraint. Fasting, prayer, giving, worship, preaching, receiving the Word, how you hear it. Everything that we do, we can very quickly turn into some kind of uh, worship of the form and worship of the outward rather than worship of the Lamb of God. And when we actually come together in fellowship, see, right now we're doing a form of fellowship. But do we know each other? Do we dare know each other? That's the key. Do we dare know each other? And not just by name and family, but by what is your present moment thing that you're either enjoying and learning from God and both end struggling through. So how can we cover each other's weaknesses and strengthen each other's strengths and receive from each other and give to each other because we actually know each other in a dangerous way? So that we stop wearing the mask, the Christian mask of, oh boy, people got to see that I really like to pray. Something going on here. There's something going on here that you have to pretend that you like to pray. Be honest that you don't like to pray right now. And guess what the Holy Spirit will do? Teach you how to pray. And like it. See, the exterior is the forest. The, The exterior is the trees. But the interior is the forest. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The interior life of our heart, coming together with the interior life of others, which is risky, which is anti-American, 
But I see sprinkled in here cultures that know what family is. And I speak from an Anglo-American who knows what it's like to live in Minnesota ice. They call it Minnesota nice, but it's, it's Minnesota ice. This is my house. This is my yard. How's it going? Oh, I'm so glad I got to talk to them. My neighbors. <laughs> that is our tendency. And the stereotype, for a reason, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, is white people don't know how to fellowship and cross those lines and be good about welcoming people. Every other culture I see in this room is more apt to do that. From the African Americans to the Latinos and the Asians. The cultures of the world that are all mixed into America are God's divine design. Forever tribe, tongue, and nation. And if we could learn from each other in a real vital way, and instead of just acquainting with each other on an American basis, let's go deeper than that and let's think of the church and how God loves and made every tribe, tongue, and nation for a reason. Let's glean from our Eastern brothers and sisters and let's default toward that of really coming together in fellowship. Let's shake off this culture's restraints and let's capitalize on this culture's freedom right now because freedom is going to lift when the church matures and they're ready to be persecuted. So it's time right now to enjoy our freedoms in a true way because freedom is the ability to do what's right, right? That's really what freedom is. Freedom isn't the ability or the license to do whatever you want. Freedom actually hones you in on choosing the best part. Sitting at Jesus' feet. Choosing the best part of fellowship. Exalting Jesus and being able to confess our sins. I want to give you the freedom to confess your sins to one another. Ouch, but oh the relief when you do it. Oh the relief, because me and God can have a good fellowship, and He can tell me about a sin I'm dealing with, and I can agree with it, but then I find all kinds of ways when I walk out of that time of prayer to hide it, to disguise it, around my brothers. And here's the thing, fellowship with God is one thing, but then fellowship with others is... Another thing, and it actually comes from fellowship with God, right? Amen. But fellowship with God can be kind of shut down when we come to our brothers because there's, there's no separation between loving God and loving people. And the issue of sin has everything to do with love, right? And fellowship with God and with, the, with each other. Sin is things that are against God's design and hurt people's design. So when we don't confess our sins to one another, and we're not being honest with one another, we can't be honest with a vibrant fellowship around Jesus. Does that make sense? We'll see how the scriptures show that to make it real. I have nothing to say unless the scriptures say it. I can't explain it without them. Go to 1 John. We don't want to lose. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees on confession of sin. We hear confession and we think confessional. Only a professional clergy can forgive my can, for, can I can confess my sins to a priest. But guess what? We're all priests. The priesthood of all believers is what's true of our day. So look what 1 John says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. This is the message we've heard from Him 
and announce to you, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another. Yes, with Jesus, but with one another. Sharing with one another, koinonia. Fellowship is to share common experience in life with one another. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints around Jesus. It's such an intimate thing that it connects people that you don't even know. You find out they're a believer, and very quickly, you know them. I've only probably physically been with David Fertrell. Probably, I don't know, how many days could we even... Even a month worth of days? Maybe a month worth of days. But we're like brothers. And you know, you guys know that. There's many different kinds of relationships that have happened in the Holy Spirit where you suddenly knew somebody. And God does that. He calls us to come into true fellowship with that. But that fellowship can go deeper and deeper and deeper. And greater and greater and greater. And we don't fellowship around sin. That's the point. That is our common ground. That we're all needy and sinners. But the point is we don't fellowship around sin. We fellowship around Jesus and when we fellowship around Jesus, we want nothing to do with sin. Amen. But when we fellowship around Jesus, it's in the light. And guess what the light does? Reveals, reveals anything dark. Right. <clears throat> and the beauty of it is it's revealed as dark to be immediately cleansed with the blood. When we're ready to be honest about it, the blood is applied immediately. And then we have fellowship with one another. There's a transaction that goes on between God and us that we feel and experience and get established in when we truly come into confession of sin around the exaltation of Jesus and the common love for each other that covers because we know the very things that we do or they do, we do. And we do, they do. In different ways. So we come together in a common bond called the blood of Jesus. That's what binds us together. But there's a call for us to do this actively. This is what he says. He says, walk in the light, confess your sin, you have fellowship with the, the, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, we have fellowship with one another. If we say, see here's the key. He knows human beings, because he is one, John, when he's right. If we say we don't have sin... Present tense. I don't care if you're a believer. You have sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Wow. But he just said, when we come together, we confess it to one another, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. That's the power of fellowship. But if we don't stay in fellowship, we won't confess our sin, and we will deceive ourselves. Just because we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit who sanctifies us, doesn't mean we can't drift, we can't quench, we can't ignore, and we can't be hardened. And we can't go back to wallowing in the mud. We need the Holy Spirit every moment. Here's the problem. Jesus didn't give the Holy Spirit until you glorified, right? The Holy Spirit trickles out from the cross. At the foot of the cross. Where we look upon the one who was slain for us. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to and keep us at the foot of the cross. That's why it's called the seal. For the day of redemption. That's why he's called the first fruits. That makes our 
spirit long to be clothed with our body of glory. That's why he's called the down payment of the full inheritance. That's why he's called the spirit of adoption. We officia. It means to sun place. He's the spirit who will sun place us. Did you know that we're not full sons yet? Oh, we're sons. Don't get me wrong. We are the children of God. But we don't know yet what we will be because when we see Him, we'll be like Him. But we're not like Him yet. We're being conformed to the image of the Son. We will be sons, the manifest sons, in the kingdom when the resurrection comes. We will be revealed as the sons of God in the glorious freedom of the children of God that the creation wants to happen now. But the spirit of adoption is the spirit that will place us as sons in the resurrection so that when we come into that kingdom, Jesus will look at us and say, you are on my throne and you are my son, Revelation 21.7, and I will call them sons. I will call them sons and daughters in the resurrection. So the spirit of adoption does what it did for Jesus in the Garden of Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had a vision of the Garden even coming back through what he was going to be doing. He was groaning in the place of prayer. And Mark 14 says he cried out, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption cries out, Abba, Father. In that place of fellowship, in agony, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We all have our garden of Gethsemane. And it's now. Until that age breaks in, that garden of Gethsemane is the place of prayer. Agonizing prayer. Longing for Him to break in, not only by His Spirit, but ultimately by His Son, through the skies. And what the work of the Holy Spirit to do is, is to strengthen us to walk as sons in the Spirit, those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit, right? right. No longer giving way to the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption that Christ's Father. And then, he gives a nice little exhortation. Seems like a side note, but it kind of comes in, sideswipes us. And he says these momentary light afflictions aren't worth, worthy to be mentioned in light of the glory that's to come. So he sets them up to realize the spirit of sonship sets you up to be able to go through tribulation well. And you know that God's Father in the midst of tribulation. So this is the place of fellowship with one another where we can't be deceiving ourselves if we're really in fellowship with one another because we'll have enough love, rapport, and trust with each other or we could tell each other when there's a booger in our nose. Because James says if you go to the mirror and there's a booger in your nose, clean it out. And if that booger pulls out a nose hair, trim it. It's disgusting. When you ate yogurt and it's all over your beard, don't leave it in there to stench all day. Deal with it. There's a remedy. Water and soap. Come on. It's the blood of Jesus. Be real about your sin. Don't deceive yourself. Get cleaned up. Take a shower. That's the idea. But if we pretend we don't need a shower, then we can't have fellowship with one another because we stink. And the church is to have no leaven and no stench. This is the separation that Jesus is calling the church to be. When the church is is vibrant, Nobody wants to associate with a social club. But many are at it day by day. What a weird mix. Everybody was in awe of the church in the book of Acts chapter 5. And they didn't want to associate because they held them in honor. Yet many were turning to the Lord and being added to the church daily. Because there's a division. Jesus came to bring a sword in this age. He came to bring a line of demarcation so people know you're in or you're out. 
And if you're in the church and there's fellowship, you're in or you're out. That's why there's something called church discipline. If you're actually in close enough fellowship with each other, there's an ability to know that somebody's in intentional sin, that they're continually going in, and what is the exhortation of God? Hand them over to Satan so that they're actually going to be saved in the day of the Lord. If you keep them in the church, they're going to go to hell. To be blunt. If you keep them in the church, they're a so-called brother that's leading all the brothers to downplay righteousness and holiness. And the leaven automatically will set the tone because human beings feed off of human beings. That's why we are to encourage each other. Because when we encourage each other, we put courage in one another to do the hard thing. Because there's a trust. And there's an ability to punch each other in the face. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Somebody in covenant with you. Who doesn't act like they have it all together. But when they are in a better time of fellowship with the Lord and they feel strong and they see your weakness... They can come and strengthen you. Or when you're both desperate in in a big struggle, you fall on your face before the Lord and the power of agreement, when two come together, Jesus is in the midst. Fellowship means that you've got to disagree with your arrogance. You've got to Move away from your your sin. And embrace something other than you. The Lamb. Who we're to feed upon. To be sustained in this life. If, if we don't eat His flesh and drink His blood, we'll have no part of it. If we don't eat the Lamb of God and have the blood on our lintel of our doorway... The death angel is coming. Christ, our Passover, has been offered. So let's celebrate without the leaven of malice and hypocrisy. Or the death angel comes. And he'll spare none. But the hope of the fellowship of the saints. Jesus wants to show up in our midst. He shows up where He's exalted. As the Lamb who will open the scrolls, send His judgments to bring the restoration. And gathering around that is our blessed hope. disciples were daily coming together in fellowship and confession of sin. Look what he says in verse 9. Instead of deceiving ourselves and saying we have no sin, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But look what he says, just for a little disclaimer. That doesn't mean we come to a point of entire sanctification where we're cleansed from everything forever. He makes it clear by saying in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay. Now here's the key. We don't want to sin and we don't have to sin. But the only way that we stop sinning is when we realize how much we actually have. And we come to terms with that. And we fellowship with one another around that. Because the point of not sinning is in the next couple verses. Look what he says. The reference point of being able to stop sinning and the only hope of sustaining a holy life of not sinning. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him 
if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. Now the key to maintaining a vital fellowship with God and each other is the cross. Is the blood atonement of Jesus. That we wouldn't find a righteousness within ourselves based on the law, but a righteousness by faith, given to God as a gift. But Paul knows his own condition. He says, that I may know him. He sets that as his goal. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection through the fellowship of sufferings and being conformed to his death. That I might, he puts in this statement, that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, either you have to say, Paul was thinking of some kind of special attainment that certain people could get to. Or he knew that if he didn't strive against his own sin, faithful to lay his life down, he might not make it in. Because it's completely by grace that we're saved. And not by self-righteousness of our own. And we kid ourselves when we think it's easy to receive that message. We kid ourselves when we think the message of grace is easy to swallow and apply to our life. That is, but it isn't. It is when you're broken, because God's near to the broken heart. But it's not when we change the grace of God into something that it's not. The grace of God must and will confront any self-righteousness before it can actually be effective. How can you receive it if you don't believe you really need it? And how can you believe you need it if you think it's some kind of a band-aid when you need open-heart surgery? You don't deal with heart disease by putting a band-aid on it. Your heart has to be removed. You don't receive the grace of God by needing a little extra help to get by. You receive the grace of God because you don't deserve it. Really don't deserve it. But by His grace we are saved. From what? From what though are we saved? Ourselves? And ultimately, the wrath of God, which is very real. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What they know about God to be true, they deny by how they live. We get into all this question of, well, maybe people will get saved if they know just enough, just a little bit about God. Maybe there's more people saved than we think because is God really going to send thousands of sincere people to hell? Yes. Because you can be sincere but sincerely wrong. All people have a desire to be good. The key is how you go about it. Humanism is one of the most encouraging messages in the world. Just live and let live and do your best and don't judge other people and then you're doing what's moral. In other words, let's just sidestep the cross and do it our way. Because we don't really need the cross. We either need the cross or we don't. There's no kind of middle, in-between-ish ground. We can't graduate the cross until the resurrection comes. That's what Jesus did. So who are we to bypass that path? Do we really know how much sin we have? 
as believers. And what are we fellowshipping around? Is it the Lamb of God? Or is it our identity that we worship? That's toast temper. We want an identity. Identity is important. Acceptance from God is important. But that's not what we worship. Don't be deceived. We do worship that. One of our idols is our identity. One of the mantras is take up your inheritance now. That's what the prodigal son tried to do. That doesn't work. But God in His grace will let us think that for a long enough time where it crushes us to the place of eating pig food. Finding ourselves in our own dome that, that we lift up our eyes and we say, I'm going to go to my father. Maybe he'll make me a slave. And at that point, the grace of God breaks into your life and he says, no, 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 no. Get the ring, get the coat, get the sandals, kill the lamb, or the goat, or the whatever it was, <laughs> kill the kill the beast, and let's have a feast and a party. And let's provoke those religious people to possible repentance. The older brother. And the older brother says, Where's my goat? Where's my animal? always been with me. You could have had one. Could that be a picture of the atonement of the blood? That what caused the son to run to that atonement or the father's acceptance was feeling the shame and worthlessness of his own condition. Then he was able to receive the atonement and then he was able to vitally repent and continue in repentance. Whereas the the older brother, all the while, was thinking he was earning the atonement. Where's my my sacrifice? Where's my party? And all the while, he wasn't prepared to receive the party because he was boasting in his work. You see, the false grace message in the church is just another form of that. It's colored and laced and prettied up like a Christmas package like it's the grace of God, but inside is dead men's bones. The grace of God causes us not to move away from the hope set out in the gospel, which is enduring to the end faithful. Laying down our lives that we don't shrink from death, that we be saved. Now, let's take this urgent doomsday mindset out of it, and let's get into what this means. What this means is, as I can get real with my condition, God will change it. And as I can get real with my condition, God can change us together. And God can focus our prayer and strengthen our prayer and our lifestyle to enjoy vital fellowship with Him. The point of all this idea of tribulation and suffering is to truly root us into what God intended our design to be. And we can truly enjoy it when we endure the afflictions that produce for us the eternal way to glory. So, finally, one verse to close it out here. Philemon, verse 6. Key. Key verse. Never thought you were going to Philemon, did you? Ever. But Philemon is power-packed from verse 4 through 7. Um, which chapter? Yeah, it's the first one. It's the last one, too. But Philemon, you know, Paul's writing to this man who has a house church. And one of the guys that he was acquainted with as a slave to him you know, uh, went and got locked up in prison for something, and Paul was in prison for the gospel, and Paul fathered him into the faith, and then Paul's sending him back and telling Onesimus, receive this man into your fellowship. He's a brother now. I'll pay whatever expenses, but really, I know you guys got some offense potentially there, but receive him. He's a brother. So in the midst of that, Paul says in 
verse 4, I thank my God always making mentioning, mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You catch that? The love and the faith toward Jesus and toward all the saints. We trust each other. We depend on each other. And then he says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith, the sharing of your faith, not evangelism, the communion of your faith with each other will do what? When you let those walls down and you deal with issues and you love on each other without judging, that your faith may be effective, become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So what is the exhortation in our day? It's encourage one another daily, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we can become partakers of Christ if we hold firm the assurance of our hope firm until the end. Come together and spur one another on the love and good deeds all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after a knowledge of the truth, there's only terrifying judgment of the enemies of God to those who once believed but trampled underfoot the Son of God and the blood of heaven and the Spirit of grace. The grace of God teaches us to say no. But in saying no to sin, turns our eyes away to the blessed hope. And the only way to stay stayed on the blessed hope is to hold to the rugged cross. Only the rugged cross can bind you to Jesus the Lamb. Only the rugged cross can teach you how to rightly exhort and correct one another. With the right motive right spirit to actually strengthen one another in the place of fellowship and prayer.